0: Alright, <clears throat> please turn back with me to Habakkuk chapter 2 <clears throat> Last week uh, we saw pitiful condition Into which the holy nation of Judah had fallen And in general the people and their kings had spurned those things which made them a holy people, and were essentially indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. The prophet Habakkuk lamented the state of affairs, asking Yahweh when he would bring justice down upon the wicked who had violated his covenant and vindicate those who had remained faithful covenant keepers. God's answer was shocking. He revealed to Habakkuk that his chosen vessel for bringing justice would be the Babylonian Empire. The people who, at least in the eyes of Habakkuk, were more vile than Judah. This only led to further questions and complaints from the prophet. In some, he wanted to know how it could be that God could use a more wicked nation to punish a lesser wicked nation still remain just in his dealings. Shouldn't the more wicked nation be punished also? The way Habakkuk put it, is he, that is Babylon, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Then, after issuing his complaint and asking his questions, Habakkuk reaffirmed his confidence that the Lord of all creation will indeed do right. This is where we're picking up in our text today. Yahweh is answering this most recent complaint from Habakkuk. So, um, picking up in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would bless us um, as we look at your word and help me to properly exposit the text. And I pray help us to all understand what you're saying um, to Habakkuk and to all of your people through all the ages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Yahweh begins his response by telling Habakkuk, So write down the content of the vision. It says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So that is to say, Habakkuk, these are not idle words. You will remember the prophet twice asked God while he was sitting by idly. These are not idle words. Write this down. Publish it for all to see and know the certainty of what I say. Make it plain to read, so that even who passes by quickly may read and know the content of this vision I am giving you without even stopping. He wants this to be plain, with no confusion or even the possibility of confusion. Now first, why was writing this down necessary? And he's audibly speaking to the prophet, right? Right? Why would this be necessary? For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. Surely come it will not delay. God had not only appointed the content of the vision, but he had appointed the timing of it also. He would surely bring it to pass, but it would be in his timing, not Habakkuk's, and not anybody else's. We, being impatient as we are, we often need reassurance when things don't happen in our timing. I think God should instantly grant our request in prayer. And when he doesn't do so, then we wonder, well, what's going on here? Why? I mean, I've been praying about this for A year, two years, however long it is, and it seems like nothing's happening. God says to Habakkuk that he wants him to write the content of the vision as a declaration and a reminder of its content and as a guarantee of its coming to pass. We're going to publish this so, one, it can be distributed far and wide so everyone can know about it, and two not just the people alive right now, but future generations can also know about. it. See, there, there you have, it's not necessarily going to be that you see this happen, Habakkuk, but it is going to happen. This is an answer to Habakkuk's question, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The Lord shows here that he is not sitting by idly while the evil swallow up the righteous. He has a righteous plan that he is bringing to fruition the whole time. Justice certainly will be done, but it will be done at the Lord's appointed time. John Calvin comments, This is a remarkable passage, for we are taught here that we are not to deal with God in too limited a manner, but room must be given for hope. For the Lord does not immediately execute what he declares by his mouth, but his purpose is to prove our patience and the obedience of our faith. The Lord is a sovereign, just, and covenant keeping God. We, his covenant people, are to exercise trust, patience, and faithfulness to him, even when we do not understand why he allows evil to continue for a time. We like to to look at promises like what's in Romans 8, that he works all things for our good, but we don't like to think about the time element in that. Timing is part of all things. The bad stuff is what, at least for us, his people, leads to better stuff. Um, And in fact, I would even say sometimes what we're praying for, we're short-selling the Lord. Maybe he intends to bless us beyond what we've asked. Maybe this is to increase our patience. Maybe this is for sanctifying effect. God knows more than we do. He knows what we need better than we do. God's answer to Habakkuk continues. Behold, his soul is puffed up. is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So here we see two kinds of people with opposite responses to the vision. On the one hand, there are those who simply do not believe God for whatever reason. Uh, They do not believe judgment is coming because they are puffed up in their souls. They're arrogant. They believe they are untouchable whether it's because they're Abraham's seed or maybe because of their perceived special status as the covenant people of God. Or maybe it's the fact that the son of David sat on the throne in Judah. Perhaps it's the self-deluded notion that they had kept God's law and they themselves were righteous. Or maybe it was the great wealth and power that they had accumulated for themselves by unjust means. Whatever the reason may be, they didn't believe God. Rather, they didn't believe God's prophet. The point is that this sort of person was high-minded enough to presume the favor of God based upon something meritorious within themselves, whatever that may have been. Such men were those of whom the Apostle Paul would later write, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're very religious. In some cases, because we do know idolatry was there, but in some cases, maybe they even had the right God in mind. But not according to knowledge. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they thought this was something special about them. They had God's favor because they were special in some way. Matthew Henry described such persons as those who think their own hands sufficient for them. The arrogant, unrighteous man is juxtaposed with the righteous who are said to live by faith. Whereas the one puffed up in his soul presumes God's favor based on something meritorious in himself. The righteous man lives by his faith or his trust in God. The idea uh, the idea being presented here is that the arrogant man does not believe the vision and will suffer, perhaps even die for it, The righteous man believes God and will live because of that. Some believe the word translated faith here should be translated as faithfulness. The idea there being that those who are unfaithful to their covenantal duties will incur covenant curses by their unfaithfulness and those who fulfill their covenantal obligations will thereby incur the covenantal blessings of God. This is an argument you will see that's put forward by Roman Catholicism or something that I think we had a discussion about here recently, the Federal Vision, which is something that comes out of Presbyterianism. Um, Or pretty much anyone who's going to be making an argument for a doctrine of salvation that requires faith plus works. But we know that that is not the case. It is not the proper way of understanding this verse, because the Apostle Paul uses this very verse on at least two and possibly three occasions, depending on who you think the author of Hebrews is, um, to establish the doctrine of salvation by faith apart from works. The first of these is what we read as our New Testament reading this morning, Romans one sixteen through 17, which also interestingly enough is the passage that is said to have opened the eyes of Martin Luther, the great reformer, to the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. We read in that passage, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul makes this elaborate claim about the gospel or the good news. The content of which is the very power of God. For salvation for those who believe it. And what is the ground of this claim by the apostle? It is this very verse in Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And if that's not clear enough. Let's look at another reference. Um, to this verse. Uh, where the apostle is grounding his argument for salvation by faith alone. Uh, let's look at Galatians 3, and I'm gonna actually take that, a larger look at that passage, but this is looking at Galatians 3, and I'm gonna read 1 through 14, because I want you to see the way that the apostle is arguing here. Galatians 3, and we're looking at verses 1 through 14. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, here it is, The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If That does not make it clear that Paul, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, understood this as being faith, not faithfulness. And this verse was one of the verses in which Paul grounded his argument for justification by faith alone. If that doesn't make it clear, nothing will. The importance of this being established, um, let's consider what's being said in this statement. The subject of the statement is the righteous. Right? Such people are not trying to attain or earn righteousness. They're already righteous. They already have righteousness. What is that positive righteousness that they possess? Paul made it clear. It is the righteousness of God. Of what does this righteousness consist? Paul makes that clear in another place, where he says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Same term. The righteousness we possess is an imputed righteousness, That was merited by Jesus alone. Scripture tells us for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Our confession explains the biblical doctrine of justification by way of imputation. In this way it says those God effectually calls he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, which is what Roman Catholicism teaches, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. His faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God, which leaves no room for boasting. And this brings us to the next part of the statement. The already righteous have a means of living. That means is faith specifically faith in Christ alone. As we just read from the confession, he does not impute faith itself as their righteousness. The faith we possess is not what makes us righteous. It is the means or the instrument by which we are joined to Christ and thereby we receive his active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience in his death. These are imputed to us through this instrument of faith. As Lewis Burkhoff states, faith justifies insofar as it takes possession of Christ. So the faith itself is not meritorious in God's sight. It is the instrument by which he applies that which is meritorious in God's sight, namely the righteousness of Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. The means or the source of our living is faith by which the righteousness of God is imputed to our account. But this is also the way in which we live. Faith is not just a means of justification. We are sanctified through it as well. Those who have saving faith live like they have saving faith. And this brings... To mind a an often quoted passage that I know many here probably can recite by heart from Ephesians 2. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So there's the means of salvation is faith. But then the purpose and the result of salvation are mentioned in the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith apart from works, but we're saved unto something as well. Likewise, we read of a living faith in James that is proven by works as opposed to a dead faith apart from works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Saving faith leads to a continual growing in grace and sanctification until the moment we're glorified, perfected. It is a living faith. What I'm getting at is that While the passage in Habakkuk is referring to living by faith, faith is proven by faithfulness. So that perhaps we can say both ideas are contained in the verse. But we need to be careful and never, ever make the mistake of saying that it's faith plus anything. It's not. Faith results in these things. But it's proven by these things. It doesn't add to faith. In fact, and here's another uh, distinction that I think we might get wrong sometimes. The good works we do is not our sanctification. The good works we do is the proof of our sanctification, just as it's the proof of our justification. We grow in holiness and therefore our acts, our deeds reflect our growth and holiness. It is not our faithfulness that saves us, but that of Christ. However, having received the righteousness of God by faith, the result should be that we are increasingly faithful to him. So, Lord willing, we will continue to look at how God answers Habakkuk's last complaint next week. I don't want to hold you here too long. In closing, uh, I want to invite you to receive this, what Scripture calls the free gift, the righteousness of God. I want to invite you to turn from those things which lead to death, turn from your sin and your self-righteousness. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he desires that he should turn from his way and live. So, I encourage you, Turn from your sin and receive the free gift of abundant life by faith in Christ alone. And if you have received this free gift, which I think is probably most of us in this room right now. I think most of us have been born again. So if you have received this free gift, walk and live by faith. Walk and live in that faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the righteousness that we receive from him. We also thank you that our sin was punished in him. And that you truly can say that you are just because you punish sin. And you are the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to live in this faith. We live by it. Help us to live in it. Help us to lead obedient, holy lives. Not to uh, build up any sort of merit for ourselves, but rather because we have received the merit of Christ and we love you. We want to live in a way that shows our gratitude to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.